who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 13. The Wolves Come Home. I charge in, ready for the fight. But Nico just stands there, a big smile on his face. He's not even wearing his guns. And then he stands aside, and there's Cass and Lobo, alive, standing there, Cass smiling, Lobo giving away nothing. I open my mouth, but no words come out. I try to go to them, but my legs give out underneath me and I collapse to my knees. Cass comes running over and puts her arms around me. How is all I manage to get out? But then Cass is squeezing me too tight to say anything else, and I let my head fall against her shoulder. And then there is another set of arms around me, and when I look up, it's Lobo. And suddenly, for the first time in forever, I'm back in the Southland. I'm so warm, it's as if I can feel the sun on my shoulders. I'm sorry, Cub, he says. We didn't know any other way. I'm not even listening. All I hear is that word, Cub, that I didn't even realize I missed so much until this moment. That name I never expected to hear again, spoken to me, the way it sounds coming from him. It's all over faster than I need it to be. And it's like waking from a dream. I open my eyes and for a moment, I don't know where I am. And then I see Nico, leaning against the table, looking just a bit smug. That look that only a sibling wears for another. That look that says, told you so. 
What the hell is going on? I ask it to the room, and they all look at each other as if asking themselves where best to begin. The night is bitter cold, a cold relieved only by the fires raging all over the deck of the northward bound. Cass and Lobo are back to back, trying their best to balance on the badly listing ship, swatting away volleys of bullets coming at them from all sides. And then there's a crack, loud like thunder. Only the sky is crystal clear, and the moon hangs overhead like an orb of ice. And then the whole deck trembles. One side of the ship rises high into the air before another deafening crack rumbles through the deck. And the ship breaks in half, sending the high side plummeting back into the water. Lobo catches one brief glimpse of Emma before she goes sliding down the deck and disappears over the side. And now no one is shooting anymore. Everyone's scrambling over one another to get to one of the lifeboats, or to get to higher ground, away from the icy water below. Lobo climbs onto the side of the hull, now nearly vertical out of the water, and from that height he spots Emma, safe as he could hope for, in one of the lifeboats, being piloted away from the wreck. Cass grabs his arm and shouts over the commotion, We need to find our own way off this thing! They make their way to higher ground, to the bridge, in which the electric lights still burn like a lighthouse hanging over the water. They fling open the door and find the captain and one of the crew, hunkered down in a corner, drinking straight from the neck of some very expensive whiskey. It's only when they look back out the window that they see what the captain already knew. The lifeboats are all away, drifting towards either shore, their small lamps like fireflies descending into night. Now what? says Cass, watching them. How the hell should I know? says Lobo, putting a cigarette to his mouth. Cass slaps the cigarette away, grabs his hand, and leads him out of the bridge. They climb up the guardrail to the nose of the ship, where a single gunslinger sits, looking down at the slate-gray water, as if measuring how long he's got before he goes under. His gun rests in his hand on his lap, but he just watches them climb and doesn't move. Lobo and Cass aren't more than a few feet from him when Lobo eyes the shooter and says to the man, Well? The gunslinger looks at the hunk of metal in his hand, like he'd forgotten he had it. It's empty, he says, just holding on to it for the feel of it. Lobo and Cass finish the climb and sit on the bars of the guardrail beside the gunslinger. Lobo takes out another cigarette and eyeing Cass says, You gonna let me smoke it this time? Cass looks down at the water, slowly approaching, and says, I guess there's time enough. Lobo lights the cigarette and then, remembering the gunslinger, hands him one. The gunslinger shakes his head and says, Never have. My ma would have slapped me something fierce. Good woman. She was, yes. They sit there for a while, watching the last of the boats disappear, and the people in the water struggling to stay afloat on pieces of debris. Never thought I'd die of drowning, Cass says. You'll freeze to death first, says the gunslinger. Well, how about that, Cass says. And then from the shore, they see the first lights of the rescue boats, motoring out towards the wreck, their spotlights sweeping over the water. Damn, says Lobo. Help always comes once I've made up my mind about it. You're the only man I know who'd curse the person coming to save you, 
says Cass. Maybe it's the not wanting it that's kept me alive so long. And then one of the rescue boats pulls up alongside the hull and shines a light up at the three people perched high up on the nose. They're waving at them to climb down. Lobo flicks the butt of his cigarette into the water and says, Might as well get it over with. Passing by the bridge, they help the captain and his deckhand out and down the side of the hull and into the rescue boat. They clamber down after, first Cass, then Lobo, then the gunslinger. Once they're away, the pilot shines a light into each of their faces, one by one, and says, Had reports of a few bullet catchers on board. What caused all this? There's an icy silence, and Lobo and Cass measure up the pilot and the other gunslinger, and then the captain and his deckhand, and figure that they should be able to take all of them without a problem. They drowned, best I can figure, the gunslinger says. The pilot lowers his flashlight and seems to relax. You seen it happen? No, I didn't see anything after the ship started going down. The pilot nods. Well, you five are luckier than a lot of them. Many of the boats are only fishing corpses. They land on shore and ease their waterlogged bodies out of the shallow boat. Snow freckles the slick stones leading up from the shore to the quay above. They shake hands with the pilot and the gunslinger, and the gunslinger leans close to Lobo's ear and whispers, if you're caught, we didn't see each other. Lobo nods. And then he and Cass make their way up the bank of large, slippery stones to the quay, where bars and windows of apartments burn soft orange in the misty night air. They climb up onto the boardwalk and look around. Lobo reaches into his pocket for a cigarette, but comes out with a clump of wet paper and ruined tobacco. He shakes it onto the ground and groans. Do you think Emma's okay? Says Cass. As okay as we are. You know her best. Where would she go in a situation like this? To ground. She'll be hard to find. Do you think she'd try to make it back south? Not without us or her brother. She's stubborn. Like her teacher, Cass snorts. He looks at her, needing a cigarette bad. She was born stubborn. A light passes over them and they look up to see a group of gunslingers walking towards them. When they get up close, the man in the lead shines the light in Lobo's face, and Lobo shields his eyes with his hands and says, I want to lower that thing a bit, friend. In his hand, the man holds a piece of paper. And Cass knows what it is from what little of it she can make out in the dark. I ain't no friend of yours, bullet catcher, the man says, reaching for his gun. Cass lowers her shoulders and pushes the man. The gun goes off in his hand, spraying Cass with blood. The sharp smell of gunpowder makes her eyes water. The man falls backwards into the rest of the group and they tumble like bowling pins. And then they're running, Cass and Lobo, turning into an alley, zigzagging through the dark abandoned streets until they're pretty sure they've lost them. They cut a path through a park. Well-manicured lawns, interrupted by lanes crisscrossing from one side to the other, and pressed down under a blanket of new snow. Let me rest here a moment, Lobo says, coming to a bench along the walkway. Don't have time to rest now. I think I oughta, he says, before slumping to his seat. His hand is clamped down on his leg, 
Blood gushes between his fingers and drips off the cuff of his pants onto the ground. Shit, Cass says. I thought I got him before he got his gun out of the holster. Lucky shot. That damned light in my eyes. She pries his fingers loose from his leg and examines the bullet hole. Then she takes the scarf holding up her hair and wraps it around his leg to staunch the bleeding. It's not bad, Lobo says, not looking at it. It's my age more than anything. It's bad enough we should get it looked at. Where do you reckon we do that? He says. Damn. I need a smoke. He watches the steam of his words curl up into the lamp-lightened sky. Don't matter what manner of town you're in, there's always a doctor who knows better than to ask questions. All right, he says. But let me just sit here a moment to gather my breath. You seen them? A voice calls from a few blocks away. There's blood here, comes another voice. Or maybe we should move on, says Cass. I reckon you're right. They run until they find a street where the lamps don't burn quite as bright. Here, even the fresh snow is already stained black and heavy, like coal dust. It sticks to their skin and the bottoms of their boots. Lobo leans his whole weight on Cass. You must have gained some weight on that cruise up the river. Cass chuckles, groaning under him. Need to rest here, he says. She lowers him down onto a stoop in front of a boarded-up brick building. Cass looks down the way they came, at the trail of blood like oil slicks in the moonlight. His pant leg is wet through. They both know how bad it is, how it'll only get worse. But there's nothing left to do but wait and hope he can gather the strength to move on. She tightens the scarf around his leg and he groans with pain. A good sign, she thinks. You all right, mister? They look up to see a young boy smiling nervously at them. His teeth are stained and mossy. His blonde hair is specked white with snow and lice. He wears sacks of uncut leather on his feet, tied around his ankles with twine. He's impossibly skinny. You hurt? Yes, Cass says, crouching to meet his eye level. Do you know a doctor around these parts who can help my friend? The boy peers around her to get another look at Lobo and says, I don't know. Is your friend a good guy or a bad guy? Cass smiles. He's a good guy. A very good guy. Don't lie to the kid, says Lobo. The kid looks at him, fear breaking in at the corners of his coal-stained face. He's just kidding, says Cass. He's got a bad sense of humor, but it's the only thing about him that's bad. I know someone, the kid says after thinking a moment. Everyone calls her Granny, but that's not really her name. It's Isabella or Esmeralda or Isadora or something. But we call her Granny because she's so old. Or not really that old, but wrinkly enough. She's all wrinkles. Cass smiles and says, lead the way. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The kid leads them a few streets over, then down an alley lined with buildings nearly reduced to rubble, caved-in roofs, crumbling walls, broken windows. The street comes to a dead end at a pile of bricks and garbage, before which stands a slanted hovel made of welded and patched together sheets of corrugated metal and plywood. The door is a thin sheet of tin that creaks almost musically when the kid pulls it open. The woman the kid calls Granny lies on a soiled settee, bowed in the middle, its once golden fabric torn and stained. The woman's head is tilted back and she stares at the ceiling through closed lids. A man on the radio fills the room with his low voice, slow as though the batteries are dying. Granny lifts her head and blinks at the three of them in her doorway. She smacks her lips and scratches her side. She's the youngest Granny Cass and Lobo have laid eyes on. In her late 30s or early 40s at most, they reckon. Though it's clear life has not been kind to her. Her skin is scaly and dark and creased with wrinkles. Three or four blackened teeth protrude from her mouth like crumbling tombstones. When she stands, she is badly hunched. What's this, then? She asks. Found the old man dying on a bench, the kid says, like it's not the first time. She looks Lobo up and down, shrugs, and says, Come with me. They follow her into the kitchen. Lobo is reminded of the stories he grew up with, of brujas who would cast spells and turn themselves into wolves or ravens, who would concoct malevolent potions and big iron cauldrons. Granny's kitchen reeks of herbs and damp. The counters are stacked high with peeled-open food tins. The table, a block of chipped wood, 
stained with evil-colored splashes of food and blood, is covered with yellowing newspapers that the woman sweeps away with an arm. Everything clatters to the floor, adding more mess to the mess. Lay down, she says, and turns to a rack of tools and herbs that she picks up and cradles in the crook of her arm. Cass reluctantly helps Lobo onto the table. The kid watches from the other room. The woman dumps the tinctures and herbs and potions onto the table beside Lobo. Cass picks up one of the glass bottles and holds it up to the light to read the faded label. What the hell is this stuff? She says, doubt creeping into her voice. The woman snatches the bottle. Never you mind, she growls. I've been curing bullet wounds and broken bones and the pox and things worse than you can imagine since I was younger than the brat what brought you here and my mother before me, and her mother. Cass looks down at Lobo lying on the table, his hand clamped to his leg. The blood pumps between his fingers, slow and dark. His eyes are heavy. Perhaps we should find another place, Cass says. The woman throws up her hands. Fine then, peel your friend off my table and try not to let him die till you're out the door. Cass, Lobo says. His eyes are half closed. We both know it's this or nothing. The woman and Cass exchange a look, and the woman begins on stoppering vials and sprinkling herbs into a small iron pot. A dark, foul-smelling odor fills the room. She pours the concoction into a rusty tin mug and pushes it into Cass's hands. Make him drink it, she says, for strength. Cass peers into the mug. The brew looks like porridge gone bad flecked with green and black bits swimming on the surface. She lifts his head, brings the rim of the mug to his lips, and tilts the contents into his mouth. It slides down his throat like vomit going the wrong way. When Cass lowers his head back to the table, the room spins. Lobo lets his eyes drift across the ceiling, over the beams and broken thatch that remind him of a map. How long has it been since I was this far north? He thinks. He remembers how smooth his skin was then, how he hid his scars under long sleeves, how he wore a bandana over his mouth like a bandit because the fresh scars on his face embarrassed him. He remembers how those scars frightened him when he looked in a mirror and didn't recognize the face looking back. When had everything changed? When did he get so old? When he closes his eyes, he pictures the tall buildings all around him, like the trees of a dark and wild forest. Many years ago, he'd read that there were certain trees whose seeds could only grow after being consumed in fire, red towers and steel woods. And then he remembers those fresh scars on the face and arms and legs of his former self, and how, when last he was here, he looked at these same buildings, these same people, and wanted to set fire to all of it. Let it grow again and hope for a greener spring. How could he have been so foolhardy, so mean-spirited? How could he have made that example for his cub, for Emma, who had in her, he knew, a kinder heart than himself? Something else is wrong. It isn't just the pain. His vision has gone double. He's seeing things he knows aren't there. Cass, Lobo says. I'm here, old man. 
Oh, man, he repeats, and Cass holds his hand and squeezes. The kid crosses into the room and stands over him. You're looking a tad green, he says. You... But he doesn't have a chance to finish. From behind, Granny rises up with one of her iron cooking pans and knocks Cass out cold. She collapses to the dirty floorboards with a groan and lies still with blood dripping from her ear. Lobo watches helpless from where he lies. The kid shrieks and runs from the room. In his stupor, Lobo only manages to lift onto an elbow and lean over the table. He sees Cass on the ground and thinks she's dead, and he doesn't know if it was his fault or fate, dealing out nothing but cold cards. And if she is dead, he hopes the woman finishes him off too. Lobo is still dizzy when he comes to sometime later. He's lying on his side on the table, his hands tied behind his back. The room is dark. Dull candlelight comes in from the other room, where he hears Granny talking with someone. The man on the radio said the reward would be double this, she says. You'll get the other half if the old man survives. It wasn't me who shot him, she says. Probably one of your lot. Lobo looks down at his leg and finds the pant leg has been cut away, and his wound has been sutured and cleaned. The bullet lies in a spot of congealed blood in a pan beside him. It's professional-looking work. The woman knew what she was doing after all, he thinks. With great effort, he rolls off the table and manages to balance on his good leg. Where Cass had been, there is only a small pool of blood from when she was hit on the head. The blood rushes to Lobo's head and he feels like he might pass out. From the shadows cast by the half-open door that leads into the main room, Cass pokes at her hand, the broken tethers of a binding still around her wrist, and flashes the blade of a kitchen knife. Life rushes back into Lobo. He rounds the table and ducks behind the pile of debris and newspaper that the woman had swept onto the floor to make room. He peers around the pile, and through the open door, he spies the woman, hunched and evil-looking in the yellow candlelight. Before her are two gunslingers, clean-cut and hard-edged in comparison. Looking around, he sees no windows in the kitchen, no other ways out. Lobo closes his eyes and takes a breath. He rolls his shoulder, loosening it, takes another breath, and wrenches the shoulder out of its socket. He breathes through the pain. Lying on his back, he loops his arms past his boots, then he wrenches his shoulders back into place. In the other room, the gunslingers and the woman seem to come to an understanding. Cass steps out of the shadow, watching Lobo. He nods at her, and she retreats back into darkness, waiting for the first gunslinger to cross through the door. When they enter and see the empty table, they don't have time to react. Cass leaps from behind the door and stabs the first gunslinger between the shoulder blades. He's dead before he hits the ground. Lobo springs from behind the pile of newspaper. The second gunslinger draws his gun and fires from the hip. Lobo reaches out with his bound hands and cups the bullet. That familiar surge of energy fills his body, traveling from his hands, up his arms, and into his body. He spins on his good leg, and the bullet spins with him. Then he extends his arms towards the gunslinger and drives the bullet straight through his heart. The gunslinger grunts, staggers a step back, extends the gun like he has another shot in him, then falls to the ground, dead. Lobo feels nothing over killing the gunslinger. 
How long has it been since he felt anything for taking a life? He's sure it'll all come back to him eventually. In the end, all debts are paid. But not now. Not yet. Cass comes over and waves her hand in front of his face. You in there, old-timer? He shakes his head clear. The woman's drugs is all, he says. I'm fine. The woman had run at the first sign of the fight. That's fine, he thinks. Let her go on living her miserable life. We can't linger, Cass says. You okay to keep moving? Lobo tries to put pressure on his leg, and the wound screams something terrible. But he's been close to dying many times, and he knows the worst is behind him. Might need a little help, he says. Cass smiles. It's about time you admitted it. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy, but how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled, or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were. And it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona. <laughs>